Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips, and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. It's where I handpick a different piece of short fiction each episode and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today, I'm going to bring you a story from the award-winning author Haruki Murakami. He is the unofficial writer laureate of Japan. Our story today is called The Second Bakery Attack, and it's from the collection The Elephant Vanishes from Vintage Books. Murakami is not only the best-selling author in Japan, his novels have been incredibly popular here in the United States. His newest book is a collection of short stories, hallelujah, called Men Without Women. Now, on to today's story. There are a couple of things that are really classic elements in a Murakami story, like lots of Western and American pop culture references. There is one reference in this story that is quintessential, iconographic American pop culture. A lot of Murakami stories feel sort of dreamlike, and this one is no exception. This one literally begins with a couple waking up in the middle of the night. Um, and because of the imagery, the the logic, the dialogue, you'll really feel like you are experiencing somebody's dream. I want you to pay close attention to the dynamic of the couple in this story. Um, because everybody, no matter who you are, if you're in a relationship, you've got secrets. And that's all I'm going to say for now. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. All right. Here we go. The Second Bakery Attack by Haruki Murakami. I'm still not sure I made the right choice when I told my wife about the bakery attack. But then it might not have been a question of right and wrong. Which is to say that wrong choices can produce right results and vice versa. 
I myself have adopted the position that, in fact, we never choose anything at all. Things happen or not. If you look at it this way, it just so happens that I told my wife about the bakery attack. I hadn't been planning to bring it up. I had forgotten all about it. But it wasn't one of those now-that-you-mention-it kind of things either. What reminded me of the bakery attack was an unbearable hunger. It hit just before 2 o'clock in the morning. We had eaten a light supper at 6, crawled into bed at 9.30, and gone to sleep. For some reason, we woke up at exactly the same moment. A few minutes later, the pangs struck with the force of the tornado in the Wizard of Oz. These were tremendous, overpowering hunger pangs. Our refrigerator contained not a single item that could be technically categorized as food. We had a bottle of French dressing, six cans of beer, two shriveled onions, a stick of butter, and a box of refrigerator deodorizer. With only two weeks of married life behind us, we had yet to establish a precise conjugal understanding with regard to the rules of dietary behavior, let alone anything else. I had a job in a law firm at the time, and she was doing secretarial work at a design school. I was either 28 or 29. Why can't I remember the exact year we were married? And she was two years and eight months younger. Groceries were the last things on our minds. We both felt too hungry to go back to sleep, but it hurt just to lie there. On the other hand, we were also too hungry to do anything useful. We got out of bed and drifted into the kitchen, ending up across the table from each other. What could have caused such violent hunger pangs? We took turns opening the refrigerator door and hoping, but no matter how many times we looked inside, the contents never changed. Beer and onions and butter and dressing and deodorizer... It might have been possible to sauté the onions in the butter, but there was no chance those two shriveled onions could fill our empty stomachs. Onions are meant to be eaten with other things. They are not the kind of food you use to satisfy an appetite. Would Madame care for some French dressing sautéed in deodorizer? I expected her to ignore my attempt at humor, and she did. Let's get in the car and look for an all-night restaurant, I said. There must be one on the highway. She rejected that suggestion. We can't. You're not supposed to go out to eat after midnight. She was old-fashioned that way. I breathed once and said, I guess not. Whenever my wife expressed such an opinion or thesis back then, it reverberated in my ears with the authority of a revelation. Maybe that's what happens with newlyweds. I don't know. But when she said this to me, I began to think that this was a special hunger, not one that could be satisfied through the mere expedient of taking it to an all-night restaurant on the highway. A special kind of hunger. And what might that be? I can present it here in the form of a cinematic image. One, I am in a little boat, floating on a quiet sea. Two, 
I look down, and in the water I see the peak of a volcano thrusting up from the ocean floor. Three, the peak seems pretty close to the water's surface, but just how close, I cannot tell. Four, this is because the hypertransparency of the water interferes with the perception of distance. This is a fairly accurate description of the image that arose in my mind during the two or three seconds between the time my wife said she refused to go to an all-night restaurant and I agreed with my, I guess not, not being Sigmund Freud. I was, of course, unable to analyze with any precision what this image signified, but I knew intuitively that it was a revelation, which is why the almost grotesque intensity of my hunger notwithstanding, I all but automatically agreed with her thesis or declaration. We did the only thing we could do. Open the beer. It was a lot better than eating those onions. She didn't like beer much, so we divided the cans, two for her, four for me. While I was drinking the first one, she searched the kitchen shelves like a squirrel in November. Eventually, she turned up a package that had four butter cookies in the bottom. They were leftovers, soft and soggy, but we each ate two, savoring every crumb. It was no use. Upon this hunger of ours as vast and boundless as the Sinai Peninsula, the butter cookies and beer left not a trace. Time oozed through the dark like a lead weight in a fish's gut. I read the print on the aluminum beer cans. I stared at my watch. I looked at the refrigerator door. I turned the pages of yesterday's paper. I used the edge of a postcard to scrape together the cookie crumbs on the tabletop. I've never been this hungry in my whole life, she said. I wonder if it has anything to do with being married. Maybe, I said, or maybe not. While she hunted for more fragments of food, I leaned over the edge of my boat and looked down at the peak of the underwater volcano. The clarity of the ocean water all around the boat gave me an unsettled feeling, as if a hollow had opened somewhere behind my solar plexus a hermetically sealed cavern that had neither entrance nor exit. Something about this weird sense of absence, this sense of the existential reality of non-existence, resembled the paralyzing fear you might feel when you climb to the very top of a high steeple. This connection between hunger and acrophobia was a new discovery for me. Which is when it occurred to me that I had once before had this same kind of experience. My stomach had been just as empty then. When? Oh, sure, that was the time of the bakery attack, I heard myself saying. The bakery attack? What are you talking about? And so it started. I once attacked a bakery, long time ago. Not a big bakery, not famous. The bread was nothing special. Not bad, either. One of those ordinary little neighborhood bakeries right in the middle of a block of shops. Some old guy 
ran it, who did everything himself, baked in the morning, and when he sold out, he closed up for the day. If you were going to attack a bakery, why that one? Well, there was no point in attacking a big bakery. All we wanted was bread, not money. We were attackers, not robbers. We? Who's we? My best friend back then. Ten years ago, we were so broke we couldn't buy toothpaste. Never had enough food. We did some pretty awful things to get our hands on food. The bakery attack was one. I don't get it. She looked hard at me. Her eyes could have been searching for a faded star in the morning sky. Why didn't you get a job? You could have worked after school. That would have been easier than attacking bakeries. We didn't want to work. We were absolutely clear on that. Well, you're working now, aren't you? I nodded and sucked some more beer. Then I rubbed my eyes. A kind of beery mud had oozed into my brain and was struggling with my hunger pangs. Times change. People change, I said. Let's go back to bed. We've got to get up early. I'm not sleepy. I want you to tell me about the bakery attack. There's nothing to tell. No action, no excitement. Was it a success? I gave up on sleep and ripped open another beer. Once she gets interested in a story, she has to hear it all the way through. That's just the way she is. Well, it was kind of a success, and kind of not. We got what we wanted, but as a holdup, it didn't work. The baker gave us the bread before we could take it from him. Free? Not exactly, no. That's the hard part. I shook my head. The baker was a classical music freak, and when we got there, he was listening to an album of Wagner overtures. So he made us a deal. If we would listen to the record all the way through, we could take as much bread as we liked. I talked it over with my buddy, and we figured, okay, it wouldn't be work in the purest sense of the word, and it wouldn't hurt anybody. So we put our knives back in our bag, pulled up a couple of chairs, and listened to the overtures to Tenhauser and the Flying Dutchman. And after that, you got your bread? Right. Most of what he had in the shop. Stuffed it in our bag and took it home. Kept us fed for maybe four or five days. I took another sip. Like soundless waves from an undersea earthquake, my sleepiness gave my boat a long, slow rocking. Of course, we accomplished our mission. We got the bread, but you couldn't say we had committed a crime. It, it was more of an exchange. We listened to the Wagner with him, and in return, we got our bread. Legally speaking, it was more like a commercial transaction. But listening to Wagner is not work, she said. Oh, no, absolutely not. If the baker had insisted that we wash his dishes or clean his windows or something, we would have turned him down. But he didn't. All he wanted from us was to listen to his Wagner LP from beginning to end. Nobody could have anticipated that. I mean, Wagner? It was like the baker put a curse on us. Now that I think of it, we should have refused. We should have threatened him with our knives and taken the damn bread. Then there wouldn't have been any problem. You had a problem? I rubbed my eyes again. 
Sort of. Nothing you could put your finger on, but things started to change after that. It, It was kind of a turning point. Like, I went back to the university, and I graduated, and I started working for the firm and studying for the bar exam, and I met you and got married. I never did anything like that again. No more bakery attacks. That's it? Yep, that's all there was to it. I drank the last of the beer. Now all six cans were gone. Six pull tabs lay in the ashtray like scales from a mermaid. Of course, it wasn't true that nothing had happened as a result of the bakery attack. There were plenty of things that you could easily have put your finger on, but I didn't want to talk about them with her. So, this friend of yours, what's he doing now? I have no idea. Something happened, some nothing kind of thing, and we stopped hanging around together. I haven't seen him since. I I don't know what he's doing. For a while, she didn't speak. She probably sensed that I wasn't telling her the whole story, but she wasn't ready to press me on it. Still, she said, that's why you two broke up, isn't it? The bakery attack was the direct cause. Maybe so. I guess it was more intense than either of us realized. We talked about the relationship of Bread to Wagner for days after that. We kept asking ourselves if we had made the right choice. We couldn't decide. Of course, if you look at it sensibly, we did make the right choice. Nobody got hurt. Everybody got what he wanted. The baker, I still can't figure out why he did what he did, but anyway, he succeeded with his Wagner propaganda, and we succeeded in stuffing our faces with bread. But even so, we had this feeling that we had made a terrible mistake, and somehow this mistake has just stayed there unresolved, casting a dark shadow on our lives. That's why I use the word curse. It's true. It was like a curse. Do you think you still have it? I took the six pull tabs from the ashtray and arranged them into an aluminum ring the size of a bracelet. Who knows? I don't know. I bet the world is full of curses. It's hard to tell which curse makes any one thing go wrong. That's not true. She looked right at me. You can tell if you think about it. And unless you yourself personally break the curse, it'll stick with you like a toothache. It'll torture you till you die. And not just you. Me too. You? Well, I'm your best friend now, aren't I? Why do you think we're both so hungry? I never, ever once in my life felt a hunger like this until I married you. Don't you think it's abnormal? Your curse is working on me, too. I nodded. Then I broke up the ring of pull tabs and put them back in the ashtray. I didn't know if she was right, but I did feel she was on to something. The feeling of starvation was back, stronger than ever, and it was giving me a deep headache. Every twinge of my stomach was being transmitted to the core of my head by a clutch cable, as if my insides were equipped with all kinds of complicated machinery. I took another look at my undersea volcano. The water was even clearer than before, much clearer. Unless you looked closely, you might not even notice it was there. It felt as though the boat were floating in midair with absolutely nothing to support it. 
I could see every little pebble on the bottom. All I had to do was reach out and touch them. We've only been living together for two weeks, she said. But all this time, I've been feeling some kind of weird presence. She looked directly into my eyes and brought her hands together on the tabletop, her fingers interlocking. Of course, I didn't know it was a curse. Until now, this explains everything. You're under a curse. What kind of presence? Like there's this heavy, dusty curtain that hasn't been washed for years hanging down from the ceiling? Maybe it's not a curse. Maybe it's just me, I said and smiled. She did not smile. No, it's not you, she said. Okay, suppose you're right. Suppose it is a curse. What can I do about it? Attack another bakery right away. Now, it's the only way. Now. Yes, now. While you're still hungry, you have to finish what you left unfinished. But it's the middle of the night. Would a bakery be open now? We'll find one. Tokyo's a big city. There must be at least one all-night bakery. We got into my old Corolla and started drifting around the streets of Tokyo at 2.30 a.m., looking for a bakery. There we were, me clutching the steering wheel, she in the navigator's seat, the two of us scanning the street like hungry eagles in search of prey. Stretched out on the back seat, long and stiff as a dead fish, was a Remington automatic shotgun. Its shells rustled dryly in the pocket of my wife's windbreaker. We had two black ski masks in the glove compartment. Why my wife owned a shotgun, I had no idea. Or ski masks, neither of us had ever skied. But she didn't explain, and I didn't ask. Married life is weird, I felt. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. I was hours into a hunt for new digs at the local shopping mall and losing steam fast when fate intervened. Drumsticks, get your drumsticks! Nutty, sweet drumstick! What luck! One drumstick, please. Here you go. This is hot and made of chicken. I want an ice-cold, creamy, crunchy drumstick sundae cone. You and me both, buddy. But that's the vendor next door. Drumsticks! But that line is three miles long! Oh, well. Another day, another drumstick. you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Shipt same-day delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. 
As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Impeccably equipped, we were nevertheless unable to find an all-night bakery. I drove through the empty streets from Yoyogi to Shinjuku, on to Yotsuya and Akasaka, Oyama, Hiro, Ropongi, Takanayama, and Shibuya. Late night Tokyo had all kinds of people and shops, but no bakeries. Twice, we encountered patrol cars. One was huddled at the side of the road, trying to look inconspicuous. The other slowly overtook us and crept past, finally moving off into the distance. Both times, I grew damp under the arms, but my wife's concentration never faltered. She was looking for that bakery. Every time she shifted the angle of her body, the shotgun shells in her pocket rustled like buckwheat husks in an old-fashioned pillow. Let's forget it, I said. There aren't any bakeries open at this time of night. You've got to plan for this kind of thing, or else... Stop the car! I slammed on the brakes. This is the place, she said. The shops along the street had their shutters rolled down, forming dark, silent walls on either side. A barbershop sign hung in the dark like a twisted, chilling glass eye. There was a bright McDonald's hamburger sign some 200 yards ahead, but nothing else. I don't see any bakery, I said. Without a word, she opened the glove compartment and pulled out a roll of cloth-backed tape. Holding this, she stepped out of the car. I got out my side. Kneeling at the front end, she tore off a length of tape and covered the numbers on the license plate. Then she went around to the back and did the same. There was a practiced efficiency to her movements. I stood on the curb staring at her. We're going to take that McDonald's, she said, as coolly as if she were announcing what we would have for dinner. McDonald's is not a bakery, I pointed out to her. It's like a bakery, she said. Sometimes you have to compromise. Let's go. I drove to the McDonald's and parked in the lot. She handed me the blanket-wrapped shotgun. I've never fired a gun in my life, I protested. You don't have to fire it. Just hold it, okay? Do as I say. Walk right in, and as soon as they say, welcome to McDonald's, we slip on our masks. Got that? Sure, but then you shove the gun in their faces and make all the workers and customers get together. Fast. I'll do the rest. But... How many hamburgers do you think we'll need? Thirty? I guess so. With a sigh, 
I took the shotgun and rolled back the blanket a little. The thing was as heavy as a sandbag and as black as a dark night. Do we really have to do this? I asked, half to her and half to myself. Of course we do. Wearing a McDonald's hat, the girl behind the counter flashed me a McDonald's smile and said, Welcome to McDonald's. I hadn't thought that girls would work at McDonald's late at night, so the sight of her confused me for a second. But only for a second. I I caught myself and pulled on the mask. Confronted with this suddenly masked duo, the girl gaped at us. Obviously, the McDonald's hospitality manual said nothing about how to deal with the situation like this. She had been starting to form the phrase that comes after welcome to McDonald's, but her mouth seemed to stiffen and the words wouldn't come out. Even so, like a crescent moon in the dawn sky, the hint of a professional smile lingered at the edges of her lips. As quickly as I could manage, I unwrapped the shotgun and aimed it in the direction of the tables, but the only customers there were a young couple Students, probably, and they were face down on the plastic table, sound asleep. Their two heads and two strawberry milkshake cups were aligned on the table like an avant-garde sculpture. They slept the sleep of the dead. They didn't look likely to obstruct our operations, so I swung my shotgun back toward the counter. Altogether, there were three McDonald's workers. The girl at the counter, the manager a guy with a pale, egg-shaped face, probably in his late twenties, and a student type in the kitchen, a thin shadow of a guy with nothing on his face that you could read as an expression. They stood together behind the register, staring into the muzzle of my shotgun like tourists peering down an Incan well. No one screamed and no one made a threatening move. The gun was so heavy, I had to rest the barrel on top of the cash register, my finger on the trigger. I'll give you the money, said the manager, his voice hoarse. They collected it at eleven, so we don't have too much, but you can have everything. We're insured. Lower the front shutter and turn off the sign, said my wife. Wait a minute, said the manager. I can't do that. I'll be held responsible if I close up without permission. My wife repeated her order slowly. He seemed torn. You'd better do what she says, I warned him. He looked at the muzzle of the gun atop the register, then at my wife, and then back at the gun. He finally resigned himself to the inevitable. He turned off the sign and hit a switch on an electrical panel that lowered the shutter. I kept my eye on him, worried that he might hit a burglar alarm. But apparently, McDonald's don't have burglar alarms. Maybe it had never occurred to anybody to attack one. The front shutter made a huge racket when it closed, like an empty bucket being smashed with a baseball bat. But the couple sleeping at their table was still out cold. Talk about a sound sleep. I hadn't seen anything like that in years. 30 Big Macs for takeout, said my wife. Let me just give you the money, pleaded the manager. I'll give you more than you need. You can go buy food somewhere else. This is going to mess up my accounts, and you'd better do what she says, I said again. 
The three of them went into the kitchen area together and started making the 30 Big Macs. The student grilled the burgers, the manager put them in buns, and the girl wrapped them up. Nobody said a word. I leaned against a big refrigerator, aiming the gun toward the griddle. The meat patties were lined up on the griddle like brown polka dots, sizzling. The sweet smell of grilling meat burrowed into every pore of my body like a swarm of microscopic bugs, dissolving into my blood and circulating to the farthest corners, then massing together inside my hermetically sealed hunger cavern, clinging to its pink walls. A pile of white-wrapped burgers was growing nearby. I wanted to grab and tear into them, but I could not be certain that such an act would be consistent with our objective. I had to wait. In the hot kitchen area, I started sweating under my ski mask. The McDonald's people sneaked glances at the muzzle of the shotgun. I scratched my ear with the little finger of my left hand. My ears always get itchy when I'm nervous. Jabbing my finger into an ear through the wool, I was making the gun barrel wobble up and down, which seemed to bother them. It couldn't have gone off accidentally, because I had the safety on. But they didn't know that, and I wasn't about to tell them. My wife counted the finished hamburgers and put them in two small shopping bags. Fifteen burgers to a bag. Why do you have to do this? the girl asked me. Why don't you just take the money and buy something you like? What's the good of eating 30 Big Macs? I shook my head. My wife explained, We're sorry, really, but there weren't any bakeries open. If there had been, we would have attacked a bakery. That seemed to satisfy them. At least they didn't ask any more questions. Then my wife ordered two large Cokes from the girl and paid for them. We're stealing bread, nothing else she said. The girl responded with a complicated head movement, sort of like nodding and sort of like shaking. She was probably trying to do both at the same time. I thought I had some idea how she felt. My wife then pulled a ball of twine from her pocket. She came equipped and tied the three to a post as expertly as if she were sewing on buttons. She asked if the cord hurt or if anyone wanted to go to the toilet, but no one said a word. I wrapped the gun in the blanket, she picked up the shopping bags, and out we went. The customers at the table were still asleep, like a couple of deep-sea fish. What would it have taken to rouse them from a sleep so deep? We drove for half an hour found an empty parking lot by a building, and pulled in. There, we ate hamburgers and drank our Cokes. I sent six Big Macs down to the cavern of my stomach, and she ate four. That left twenty Big Macs in the back seat. Our hunger, that hunger that had felt as if it could go on forever, vanished as the dawn was breaking. The first light of the sun dyed the building's filthy walls purple and made a giant Sony Beta ad tower glow with painful intensity. Soon, the whine of highway truck tires was joined by the chirping of birds. The American Armed Forces Radio was playing cowboy music. We shared a cigarette. 
Afterward, she rested her head on my shoulder. Still, was it really necessary for us to do this? I asked. Of course it was. <sighs> With one deep sigh, she fell asleep against me. She felt as soft and as light as a kitten. Alone now, I leaned over the edge of my boat and looked down to the bottom of the sea. The volcano was gone. The water's calm surface reflected the blue of the sky. Little waves, like silk pajamas fluttering in a breeze, lapped against the side of the boat. There was nothing else. I stretched out in the bottom of the boat and closed my eyes, waiting for the rising tide to carry me where I belonged. I took my first trip to Japan in uh, the winter of 1978 um, to promote Roots. Roots had just aired in Japan, and I went on a, a promotional tour. I was invited by TV Asahi, the broadcasting station. One of the things that I remember most about Japan, the show was really, really popular there. And there weren't many black people walking the streets of Tokyo, as you might imagine. And so... It was easy to recognize the ripple of recognition as I would walk down the street, and yet Japanese society is such that no one had the um, boldness or rudeness from their perspective and point of view to approach me on the street. One of the other things that I remember very vividly was being in downtown Tokyo amidst all of of the kanji on the buildings and being stunned to stumble across a Kentucky fried chicken. And um, I don't know to this day whether it was happenstance or purposeful promotion, but there was this elderly Japanese man sitting in a white suit with a black Kentucky Colonel's bow tie with gray hair and a gray goatee. And I swear to you, this man was the spitting image of the Japanese Colonel Sanders. So when I first read this Murakami story and saw that, 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 it, that this robbery took place at a McDonald's, it resonated so deeply with me because one of the things that Murakami does in his writing is pepper his stories with Western references. Um, and the McDonald's in, in this story is, is exactly that. His writing, his writing sort of straddles for me the, the real world and the world, like we said at the beginning, the, that dream world. He loves taking an ordinary person and putting them in this sort of existential crisis that is layered then with the fantastical. And, and it's a place where I love 
as a reader to go. One of the things that I that really strikes me about the story is is the the revelations that that we experience. It's very interesting that that the two protagonists as a married couple don't seem to know very much about one another. And that's another sort of recurring theme in Murakami's work, that the the, the theme of distance and illusion, right? Um, the cinematic image that that he gives us of being in that boat on 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 top of this clear water and the water is so clear you can't really tell how close or how far away the volcano is. And at the same time, you know, we're experiencing these two people really feeling each other out virtually for the first time in what I hope is a long relationship. It's 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 tough to tell. When a marriage begins with larceny, you know, where where do you go from there? Because he's got what he feels is this deep, dark, terrible secret. And as it comes to find out, his wife is pretty good at cloak and dagger and, you know, armed robbery. So there's that, you know. Um, and it really does speak to the idea that <sighs> do we ever really know anybody else? I mean, do you ever really, really know the person that you're married to, the person that you lie next to every night? We like to think we do. Um, I guess I'm pretty resigned to the idea that my wife, after 25 years of marriage, 30 years together, continues to surprise me. And I hope I provide that same kind of amusement for her. LeVar Burton Reads is produced by Julia Smith. Our editing and sound design by Adam Dybert. And a big thank you, as always, to Matt Gourley. And my thanks to Eric Jorgensen for his help in producing this episode. And a big thank you to Haruki Murakami for letting me read his story to you today. It was translated from the Japanese to English by Jay Rubin. And if you liked the story, and let's face it, how can you not like the story by Murakami? Look for the full collection of his stories called The Elephant Vanishes. It's available as an audiobook from Penguin Random House Audio, and you can find that on Audible. And please, if you enjoy the show and want to help us help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving a review, go ahead and suggest a story for the show. I have loved hearing your thoughts about the podcast. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. Or if you can't wait that long, listen to the next episode right now on Stitcher Premium. To find out more, visit stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, L-E-V-A-R. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Ginny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. When people from different cultures get married, how do they decide what food is going to be their food? You've completely given up the way you grew up eating. When we pass our cultures on to our kids, 
What are the complications? Generations and generations of Jewish people in my family who've kept kosher. Like, is it going to end with me? Am I going to be the one that's going to stop? I'm Dan Pashman from the Sporkful Podcast. Join me for our latest series on race, culture, and food called Your Mom's Food. How do parents who adopt kids from other countries use food to connect their children to their birthplace? It's one of the few things that is truly Ethiopian that I can give to him. And what happens when those kids grow up and feel like it wasn't enough? We'd go to this camp in the mountains, and that was where we were Korean. And then once we left, that was kind of it. Your mom's food is up now. I'm in a cultural struggle in North America, too. Would I be happier if you kept kosher and they kept kosher? Yeah. That's like the first thing you do with your kid is you feed them. Subscribe to The Sporkful in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.